And welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 43, Questions and Answers. Uh, we have a list of questions that you sent in. We're going to be reading, and we're going to be then taking some from the live stream here and pulling them out. We like doing these episodes. We really missed the mark, though. We have somehow not aligned things properly because the Q&A episode should have been episode 42. Anyone? <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> been. just like, yeah, we certainly missed an opportunity. So, um 142 is going to be the Q&A episode. We're just letting you know ahead of time. Some yep. foreshadowing here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, there's got to be some significant numbers in between that we'll, we'll do some play on words or something with. But before we dive into those details, let the thank a sponsor show, and that is Linode. And it's funny because before this PNG, we uh, got a renewal from Renode linode for this year which actually behind the scenes you know we actually said uh, we've already started using it for the first few episodes of january so we're really happy they said they they'd renew because they actually weren't obligated to for january but yep. they are going to keep sponsoring the show so you should check out linode many of the projects we talk about in here can be hosted on linode server there's just so many different things that you may not want to use your public ip address for which i think may come up at least in one of the q a's on here about vpns yep. but with that being said where would you host it, but you want to maintain control of it. Alone is a great answer for that. They've been a sponsor show since the very beginning. If you're downloading this podcast or clicking on the RSS feed, the site that the podcast is hosted on and the download files come from is still on Linode. Um, that's been great. They've been a solid service. They've increased the bandwidth to accommodate the number of downloads, and that should be, uh, that's an impressive number. Me and Jay have been really excited. A lot of you don't always use a, uh, a federated podcast app. Some of you are old school, and I, I can really appreciate that. You just download it directly from our site, and that is all facilitated through Linode. If you would yeah. like to get started with Linode, the sponsorship is for the sponsor. Uh, it's linode.com slash homelabshow. I want to make sure uh, that's in there. It's in the links down below, but just so you know to use our offer code because that's always what you know lets them know that they should keep renewing their support for this show and you know keep keep funding me and jay for talking about all this fun stuff all right Yay. um oh someone suggested make episode 47 uh trek themed about that's an idea yeah there's always there's always opportunities there all right where is the first question we want to start with here i think it was a low the low Low wattage one, I believe, was the first one, right, Jay? I think so. Yeah. Um, let me go ahead and see, because I know that's uh, something that we kind of talked about, but, um, you know, it's it's kind of like a thing, you know, it keeps coming up because it's a very big concern for a lot of people. So um, my understanding is that the individual that wrote in is looking for something that's um, not power hungry, but has a decent number of cores. Electric usage can be very expensive in some areas, depending on where you live. So that's a very um, important thing to consider, something that I wish I considered when I just impulsively bought a stack of servers in Ohio um, some time ago. Um, I would say, <clears throat> I, I don't remember the model number, but there's a Dell Precision workstation tower that is pretty reasonable. And those really do make good servers. It, I can't. I wish I knew the model number, but just have a look on um, on eBay. Even though many of them come with an NVIDIA GPU that you, you probably won't use unless you actually are using something GPU accelerated, you could go that direction. Otherwise, um, outside of that, you could always look at, uh, I believe it was LabGopher is a good one. And then there's the L-series Xeons that are low power usage as well. So if you see that on eBay, for example, or wherever you get used servers from, if there's an L-series Xeon, that could also help save some power. 
Yeah. And it's one of the reasons the Raspberry Pi stuff is so popular is it allows you a lot of the learning flexibility, especially if you go, hey, I'd like to play with multiple systems because I want to get into orchestration and things like that. Um, and Raspberry Pis are a great solution because you can become very efficient. They're a low wattage right. single board. The other uh, question you'd asked in there, and there is a pretty fair assessment, the new Ryzen's give you a really good total cost of ownership for watts per dollar. And you can check and even XCPNG, they have some modifications they've made in the last year to be more compatible with the more modern the consumer, not having to go all the way to their Epic because the Epics have a different cost problem of they're expensive. I mean, don't get right. me wrong if, if it's within your budget, but we know me and Jay are very aware this is the home lab show, not the uh, I can afford a brand new Epic processor show. So yeah, <laughs> it's over fun to play with. We do try to keep yeah. it so it's very accessible for a lot of our audience and yeah so I, I wouldn't shy away from ryzen uh that was one of the other questions they had in there so don't shy away from it really you'll find linux supports pretty good for it uh the xcpng and i don't believe proxmox has any problems with it being based on debian it should work perfectly fine as well yeah so i i'm less uh knowledgeable on how well it's supported in vmware but i'll actually say I'll, i'm gonna guess and assume vmware supports it as well yeah. And, and another thing, I mean, going along with what you said about cost, notice that I didn't even recommend the uh, servers that I built and did a video for because um, those are relatively expensive. The super micro boards that are like a system on chip, Xeon or Intel Atom, those save a lot of power. Like my um, Proxmox nodes each use like 50 watts or something like that. So, um, but the problem is the board is expensive and then add COVID tax on top of that. And it's probably not going to be a cost efficient way to go. But if you have money burning a hole in your pocket, maybe that could be something to consider. Yeah. And me and Jay have talked a few times. Uh, you can do things like wake on LAN to shut down things that you're not needed. I mean, there's oh, yeah. once you start thinking about your off hours, if you have a day job where you're not using any servers, they don't need to be accessible. Um, it's not too outlandish to think about just shutting things off during times of non-use or yep. when you're just not worried about it. That can really, you know, that cuts, it'll start saving dramatically on your power budget for that. So those yep. are definitely, it may, and matter of fact, that becomes a fun orchestration project. Do you need all these VMs? Can you just set a thing that powers off the VMs? Maybe you leave the VM server up and running, but you'll actually watch the wattage usage go down as you power down VMs. I've looked at this yep. even with our servers going, do we really need all this lab stuff running that we're not using at the moment? Cause I know it's like a future project. I'll just pause it all. And you can actually see when I pause it. Cause you're like, Hey, look, there's a little less wattage being used and that scales because it's also less wattage used on the storage server. Cause the hard drive is not grinding as much and things like that. So oh, yeah. yeah, all, all that stuff definitely adds up. It's a cumulative process because Jay and Jay's taken to the next level, of course, with his uh, setup at home. You know, so many watts each room in his house uses. <laughs> I wonder. Um, but, you know, the power bill for me, I think last time I looked at it, it was like four hundred dollars. It was like crazy. Um, and that's with, you know, power savings and shutting things down. So I, I have a bit of a mystery to solve here because uh, that's a, that's too much. There's nothing here that I think um, makes that make sense. And uh, that's the home assistant that Jay is using for that, along yep. with, uh, if, if you get a home assistant, that's the place where you can have all the information consolidated, then it's up to you. And uh, by the way, as Jay mentioned, there's going to be some part shortages on finding some of these, but if you hunt around, you can 
you find what's in stock, look up compatibility. Uh, a lot of different plugs that do plug into Home Assistant do offer wattage information. Um, mm -hmm. They're actually, and it gives, it's kind of really nice interface for keeping an eye on the wattage as well. We actually have uh, some heavier duty ones that we got off of Amazon uh, here at the office. And we have our, uh, my office is, in an effort to make it more energy efficient, I should say, we use zone heating. What that means is we actually have just space heaters, but they're also on toggles that were designed to handle that many watts. And that cumulatively lets me know which zone is using which wattage to maintain the temperature um, and we can maintain it. And of course, for safety reasons, we're able to shut them all off via uh, the app, but there, there, there's some devices like that. So you can really drill down in different areas how many watts you're using. Yep. So uh, they're called the the ones we're using. Just so I want to look the name up of them. Z O O Z Zoos Z Wave Power Plus Switch Zen Fifteen. So wow. um, those are yeah Z O O Z. They actually have a unique enough name. You could probably find these. So but try saying all of that five times fast. Yeah. And uh, when I build my new studio, which will be done soon, I'll be talking about that because I I will be using Home Assistant and we'll set it up from scratch at my office. Uh, so I'll probably cover some of that because I'm putting some of these same plugs and switches in. Um, I'm less worried about wattage all the way around and my thing, but I just want to be able to control things. But it's a bonus that you also get wattage information on these. I mean, I worry about it. I don't like just throwing money out the door. I don't, you know, I did buy stock in the lecture company, but it's <laughs> a different topic. <laughs> yeah. Maybe my power usage is helping you out then. <laughs> it, it is, man. It's, uh, yeah, it was my grandpa's old joke. You leave the lights out. What do you own stock in a power company? Well, grandpa, now I do. <laughs> All right. Um, you addressed this before, Jay, and it was the question of uh, the RSS feeds. I, yep. Besides, the, the problem is the project you like doesn't have the best developer community. Like the, the tool itself works, but the developer um, maybe is less than pleasant. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was hes hesitant to recommend it. Tiny, tiny RSS is what I use. And, you know, I've been setting up uh, web apps and things for quite a while. And, um, it's been fine. I mean, I have a lot of experience with that, so I don't need to ask for help as much as, you know, some inter intermediate or beginner um, users might. But their forums, um, I haven't checked it in a while, disclaimer. I probably need to go back and see if this is still the case. Their uh, community was very toxic, so I, I just really don't want to recommend something then have people post messages in their forums and then get totally flamed by the owners, um, which is just weird. So I haven't found a replacement solution. I use it just because I don't even need to communicate with anyone. It, it just works. And I think I ran into some problems, but I was able to get through it and get it fixed. But um, that Tiny Tiny RSS can be a good recommendation there if, um, you know, with that disclaimer I just mentioned. If there's like a, a replacement or some other direction to go, then an episode about R RSS might actually happen. But we have to have, uh, you know, some structure and something to use for that. So um, we'll see if that can happen or not. I Yeah, I used to use, I mean, I'm pretty sure I used to use, was it Thunderbird for RSS, doesn't it? Yep. It still has a built in, don't they? I think so. Yeah, it's been a long time. I don't aggregate it like I used to. Maybe I should go back to it. I, you know, went from RSS uh, combined with slash dot for my news and then moved over to, I really, if you curate Reddit and maybe I'll make some curated Reddit lists I have of what, what forums I follow, but Reddit's always with a grain of salt because, you know, Reddit, our system in sometimes is really valuable information about something, but many times is 
I don't like my job. Here's a long rant upvoted to the top. And I don't know if that's always something it's a distraction, not a good read, but sometimes people will post some really good information about sysadmin work or troubleshooting they found or discussions around technical topics that I find interesting. Um, I don't know. There's, there's a back and forth back, not to get too off topic of the RSS, but there's different ways to aggregate your news information together um, because it's, it's a lot. There's so much out there trying right. to focus it down to what's relevant to my interests is actually very challenging because somewhere inserted in between is the time sinks that are just, <laughs> fluff articles that get stuffed right. in there that I don't, that aren't going to be much valuable. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and for clarification, you know, I used to use Thunderbird as well for the same reason. And that does work pretty well. You could just add your um, RSS feeds in there and um, get those messages and get those articles. But my problem with it was like, you know, I'm switching back and forth between laptop, desktop. So it's like, did I read that article on my laptop, on my desktop? Yeah. And then it gets very confusing. But with um, Tiny Tiny RSS, what that is, is a central um, aggregator that you can connect to. And there's all kinds of different clients. So that way, if you read the article on one device, it's read on all the other ones, too. So that way it doesn't um, get to be confusing or anything. Um, so that's the value of having like a central RSS feed. And then I'll, I figured out. I have to go back and write down these steps. There's a way to actually add YouTube videos to an RSS feed. So that way your favorite YouTubers, you could just like have their videos show up there. And it's not easy to do because it, you know, it's almost like they they have the feature hidden completely on YouTube. And, and I had to do some kind of URL trickery to find the actual URL to use for the feeds. It wasn't really uh, the most pleasant thing I've ever done. Um, so if we do any content about that, uh, maybe I'll write down the steps. So that way, um, if anyone wants to do the same thing I do, then you can uh, go ahead and do that. Yeah. So that's... Um... That's a, it'd be an interesting one. I'd be interested in as I've never thought about doing the YouTube feeds because the YouTube subscription system is as a as a consumer of some YouTube content, it's kind of garbage. As a creator, it's really garbage. They don't give us great tools to uh, help distribute what you know you want to see. Um, right. That's always been a challenge. It, YouTube's still the, as many flaws as it has, though. One of the reasons we publish on YouTube is still one of the best platforms for it. That doesn't mean we think it's perfect at all. Right. We, we'll all address that there are certainly issues with it. Um, but if yeah. we can find tools to help make it better for you, then it would also make it better for us too. <laughs> yeah, the uh, we should come out, out with the suck less YouTube package with all the <laughs> tweaks. And Well, I mean, I, I joke around, but yeah, YouTube is just as frustrating for me as it is for other people, believe me. Yeah. Um, question, Jay, should we mention the suggestion for April Fool's or should we just wait and make that an April Fool's episode? Uh, yeah, we shouldn't. Um, okay. I'm not saying we're going to go with the one that we have here, but, um, you know, I, I don't know why I love April Fool's. Um, if you have been on yeah. my panel, you've probably seen that I always come out with, uh, or at least I try to anyway, um, an April Fool's video. I did um, a review of the best Linux distribution ever um, one year. Then the next year I um, had Mycroft re review uh, Debian, which was a lot of fun too. So um, as far as this podcast is concerned, um, maybe we'll come up with something fun and um, or maybe we yes. won't. Well, I guess well, we'll find out. You, and and you, we'll play. On, we'll do some fun play on stuff with this. But uh, if you want to suggest some April Fool's, so we actually I like this idea of people suggesting it because maybe there's definitely ideas we don't have. We're always le leaning towards our audience for hey, why not? That might be fun. Um, you hit us up. Go to thehomelab.show. We have a feedback form you can fill out and send us feedback. Uh, we don't force you to put give us your email address or anything like that. But we we enjoy some of those ideas. So if you have some April Fool's yeah. ideas, throw them at us. Me and Jay at yeah. least want to laugh. Whether we do them or not. It's 
going to be a complete mystery. You'll find out after April 1st. <laughs> or maybe the April Fool's joke will be to find an April Fool's joke, but there isn't one. Nah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, if you want to get started in HA for your infrastructure, where do you start? PF Sense, Pi-hole, um, or is that just device overkill? So the PFSense HA, I've done a couple of videos on it. One of the really cool things to me is how accessible it is on PFSense. Uh, I have a video I did using their more basic NetGate routers, but you don't have to use anything by NetGate to do this. Uh, you can take really any two matching systems, some older pair of inexpensive stuff and get started on it. Do I think you ever need it in your home lab? Probably not. It's it's not something that most people need. Generally speaking, if you get, especially if you go with one of the, let's say the NetGate devices or even one of those Protectelli or solid state type devices where there's no moving parts, you're talking about a pretty reliable computer that generally right. doesn't have too many failures. It's also quick to replace PFSense. You back up the XML file, you reload it, you grab the XML file and put it on there and it's all restored and back up and running. So it's not like it takes hours and hours to rebuild it. But from a learning side of it, building HA is actually pretty awesome. And there are ways you can build HA and PFSense on the LAN side, even without having all the extra requirements of the WAN side static IPs. Hmm. It's kind of a uh, messy way to do it on the WAN side. So usually you just live because if your ISP is only providing you a single IP, you're not going to be able to share that single IP easily between two PF senses. So you kind of lose the WAN failover. There's a way to do it by setting up private IPs and a lot of funky networking that would be way out of scope. Uh, there's a write-up someone has in the forums on how to do it uh, over in the NetGate forums. If you Google like how to do PF sense WAN without multiple IPs and HA, you'll find it. But the LAN side, because it's all building private IPs, that gives you a massive opportunity to create private IPs, uh, VIP IPs, understand how IP sharing between HA devices go. So I think it's a fun project because it's pretty well documented. And I, I've got videos on it as well that's based on the PFSense documentation. I think it's a great dive into HA, not because it's PFSense, but because it teaches you how a high availability switch might work or a high availability networking gear. It's a good opportunity because this is, almost very, very similar to the way a commercial TrueNAS by IX Systems HA dual motherboard system works by sharing the IP addresses. The mm. concepts you'll learn inside of it of how you can share an IP address between multiple devices. There are two physical devices with one IP and who holds that IP and the methodologies. If you dive into the methodologies they use to determine who is the owner of the IP, but how even the states that are going through it the failover can be done transparently and move between the devices. Great learning opportunity in network engineering of, huh, of it's like a head scratching moment of, I didn't know you could do that. And I think it's a great place to learn because it's not a, uh, it's not a super difficult task to do. And you can even set up HA in VMs. Uh, you can build it out like that. And of course, if you're double natting, um, you can actually build an HA system for failover with double NAT because you're using private IP on WAN, private IP on LAN, but as a demo of how it did. And that's actually how I set my demos up was using a series of just private IP addresses. So I think it's a great place to start when you want to dive into the concepts of how things work in HA. Um, and if you expand it out, because the person in the question asked about PFSS specifically, but you can also expand this out to, um, I've got videos on how HA clustering works in XCPNG. Have you covered that in Proxmox, uh, some of the HA stuff at all, Jay? 
Um, yeah, in the Proxmox series, there it's pretty much covered. There's a, you could set up a cluster. I show the process and then high availability as well. So if that's something that anyone is interested in, they could check out the Proxmox series. It's toward the end of the series, but it is covered. Yeah, so plenty of um, things you can dive into there. So it's definitely uh, really just, I think, a great learning experience. is one mm -hmm. of my, my big things of it because it teaches you some advanced level networking. The concept scale to the way Cisco does it, it's going to be slightly different implemented in Cisco, but it works. It's the same concept. And I, I believe Palo Alto and PFSense, because they're both BSD-based, used, I've not set up Palo Alto's in mm -hmm. HA mode, um, but I believe they use the same principles for their setup. So once again, it's very translatable if you pivot into these. Uh, that's a lot of the basis when me and Jay talk about these things. We love the fact that a lot of the home lab stuff, and we try to relate this, because home lab, maybe that's the only place you want to be, and that's fine, because it's your hobby and tinkering. But I know there's a, a very large uh, portion of this audience that goes, this is where I want to start, but I really would love a career hanging out in the data right. center or something. Uh, so I love when these skills are very translatable back and forth like that. So that's my, my that's my thoughts. PFSense is a great place to start. There's a lot of learning opportunity in there. And I'm going to add a few notes to this. And I think that it kind of transition, um, excuse me, will transition us right into the next question. Um, it's actually kind of crazy how well this is going to work. So, um, so I, I totally understand high availability and setting it up in your home lab. And um, like you were saying, if this is a learning opportunity for you and you want to learn how this works, then that's an awesome reason to do that. But I would suggest backups be your priority first before you get to that point. And then you can start getting into high availability. Uh, for example, with PFSense, what I've done in the past, yes, you can export the settings and it's really easy to restore those settings. But you can also clone Zilla your PFSense box. Um, assuming, of course, that um, you know you're on a device you can boot from USB. I don't see why you wouldn't be, and that you can, can get, you know get some sort of display because some of the integrated devices won't even have an HDMI port. Um, is it pronounced Protectelli? Because um, I'm using that. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm positive I'm saying it wrong, but people figure it out. <laughs> okay, well I'm using that too, so I'm, I'll say it wrong along with you. Um, Protectly, I think is actually. I think I add extra letters in there. Protectly, yeah, I think is how they say. <laughs> but um, I, you know that one, the one that I have has an HDMI port on there, um, or is it VGA? One of the two. Anyway, I just hooked up a display, booted off a USB key with Clonezilla had another USB key in there and just dumped the hard drive right to the USB key. And that's it. Um, so that way you have that backup. High availability is nice, but if everything comes crashing down, how do you get your settings back? And that's something that you can consider like with Pi-hole, um, you know, the individual mentioned that. I mean, just take a backup of, of the SD card is probably the easiest way to do it. So high availability, like I said, in my opinion, should be after backups. Backups are a very important thing. And speaking of which, our next question actually goes through that or wants to know about that. Yes. Where someone is asking us of how we do it. So, uh, Tom, how do you do it? I use SyncThing to real-time backup the things that are important to me because real-time mm -hmm. backups are the most important because I don't want to lose anything that I did at any given moment. But I don't back up my system. And some people are like, what? You don't back it up? And Jay is going to explain a little better, but Jay has one of the most beautifully done ones. Mine are way, way rougher. I'm, I'm on the far side. My goal is to achieve what Jay has done. But don't worry, Jay did a video on this. So you can help. You can, <laughs> he can set you on the path, uh, which is having deployment scripts. And Linux allows, in, yeah. for those of you that work in the more advanced Windows world, there is a Windows deployment server. And if you get really clever at it, yes, you can get this working in, in Windows as well. I don't know how accessible that is when you don't have a Windows deployment server. 
back to the Linux topic, the more exciting one to me, because I do run Linux as my daily driver on all my systems, you can build out a scripts. And this is the, the ideal way you build servers. Servers should be ephemeral. The data is what's important, but the server itself should yep. be like, hey, I don't know why it broke. I'm going to rebuild it really quick and reattach it to its data store. Once you get your deploy scripts and if you build everything like that, and Jay has taken a better approach and I'm slowly, because once you built it the other way, um, which is, I would say the wrong way, but this way I've been doing it for so long. If you start by how can I build this as an automated tool, then that creates a way that if a server ever dies, you can just rebuild it. So instead of setting down to configure a server and set it up from scratch, you go through and build tools or use build tools such as Ansible to go through and set all the parameters to define everything through automation. So you could repeatedly do it with a script as opposed to doing it by hand. So you take any of the <coughs> configurations and variables that you did and that you changed and figure out how to insert them into your Ansible script. And that's what Jay has done. So when Jay has a base load, you know, apt get install Ansible is about the only thing he does after he loads. And then Ansible says, what's this thing missing? What's its role? And take it from there, Jay. <laughs> well, actually, you don't even have to apt install Ansible with mine. <laughs> oh, uh, damn it. So I got further. it um, automated even curl? more than that. So you have to I'm install going, curl? Um, correct. So okay. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to go over my setup with the disclaimer that it's way over-architected and I don't That's expect what we're here for. anybody it. to, <laughs> to, yeah, exactly. I don't expect anyone to be at this level and I'm not recommending you should, but if you are into automation and that's something that you enjoy doing as I do, then you might want to consider this. But um, it took a long time. So basically I have Ansible set up in Ansible pull mode, which means that there's no... Um, central server. The problem I have with the central server and the way Ansible normally works is that you have a list of hosts and via SSH, it'll connect to each of those hosts and configure them. But in my case, I have servers and workstations. Workstations can be a desktop, laptop, servers could be cloud or physical, doesn't matter. Um, servers, a lot of them are always on. Some of them are off. My laptop is only on when I'm using it. So with an Ansible server, I get a bunch of errors. It can't reach my laptop. I know it's in my bag. It's in, it's in suspend. Of course it can't reach it. So I don't want to see those errors because sometimes things are unreachable, especially in the middle of the night when I turn some things off. So Ansible pull mode, it, what that allows you to do is pull a Git repository and run it localhost. So the machine via cron will just, anytime it, it's up, will just pull the um, Git repository. There's a flag where it says, check if there's changes and only run if there's changes. So that way, you know, Ansible isn't like repeatedly running, but when you commit a change, then it's uh, flagged as having a new commit and then Ansible pull will say, oh, that there's some, there's some changes there. I need to pull that down and run it. And that way, you know, you'll never see errors like that. And then I went another level and set up a web server that's local LAN only. You can't reach this from the outside, but if you're on my network, you could just run curl deploy slash bootstrap and pipe to sudo bash and that's it. Um, it, if it's a server, it gets the server profile. If it's a laptop desktop, it gets the appropriate thing. Um, and I've automated it such that the, I could actually install Ubuntu minimal, which is just the command line or Debian, um, just the command line. It'll build it up to GNOME and set up my wallpaper, my GNOME settings. If it's a desktop, everything, every app, every flat pack is installed. If it's a server, it gets all that, um, so it's just like this really intense thing that I created. But then again, it's like, you know, if automation is not your thing, then that may or may not be where you want to go. Um, I would say 
the most important thing to do is to just list the most important things that, or maybe the hardest to set up things. Like if you were to lose X and it was like the worst thought ever, like if you lose this thing and if it doesn't start up anymore, um, it's just going to be a lot of work or a lot of damage if you lose files. Like that's where your focus is and then just order them that way. And there's a lot of clever tricks you can use sometimes when it comes to things like this. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of my servers actually um, got some sort of uh, malware on that. I mean, I'm believe it or not, I'm not perfect, right? So even I am going to run into situations sometimes where um, there's a security vulnerability and I don't, I don't uh, patch it fast enough or something like that. Um, but I... It normally would just, you know, wipe the whole server and start it over. Automation scripts will allow me to do that. But I also had the um, FireWW HTML folder under version control. Um, it was not uploaded anywhere. So it wasn't like a Git repository that um, you'll find on GitHub. It's a local repository. So I just did Git, you know, check out. <laughs> and boom, everything was right back to the way it was before the person or whoever it was got in there and put malware on there. And then I patched the server and I was fine. It took me all of a minute. Now, of course, you could probably get your Git repository infected too. There is that. But if you put your mind together, you can come up with some really interesting ways to deal with this. And not only that, you could um, use Kubernetes, for example. I have videos on a Raspberry Pi Kubernetes cluster that you could build. It's not you know, too expensive. But right now, I mean, we can't even get Raspberry Pi. So um, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But with uh, Kubernetes, you can actually have the um, deployment scripts or the um, Docker files. So that way, if you're... Um, app breaks, you could just, you know, instantly recreate the exact same container. And if you have the storage, the stateful storage for the containers on something like TrueNAS, um, then all it needs to do is connect to its data store and you don't lose anything. And then you have your uh, data store actually versioned. So if something happens to that, you could just revert it back. Um, when it comes to actual backups, I use SyncThing as well. I have a central SyncThing server. All of my machines, they don't sync to each other. They sync to the server. So you can think of it like a star topology. So my laptop, I update a note file or whatever. It syncs to the sync thing server. And then the other nodes will connect to it, see that the file changed and get the change. So in order for me to lose data, then I think like six or seven machines would have to die at the same time. Um, and even then, my sync thing is actually backed up to... Um, Backblaze B2. So even if that does happen and you know I'm completely wiped out, I still have my data there. And I also have like some other places I store things too. So um I would think I would think of it in terms of like like how much work would it be to set up your server again? And if you're going to set up a new server, at least write down the steps and the commands that you use to do it, because those commands could actually serve as the framework for automation later on. So um, I have all kinds of tips. I can I could just keep going and going, but I think I'll leave you guys with that as a starting point, and maybe that'll uh, generate some new questions. Yeah, and I think one of the questions that was in here, you have an Ansible playlist. So if people want to learn Ansible, you have yep. you have a Kubernetes playlist or just some Kubernetes videos. I don't yet. Um, there's a there's an announcement that is coming that's really awesome. I I just wish I could say what what it is. Um, the Kubernetes videos are on a temporary hold. I'm thinking maybe spring or summer, I'll hopefully get yeah. back into that. So, But there are, um, there's a few other people you can find some Kubernetes videos for, yep. but there's definitely, um, we, we have content between, uh, mostly when it comes to the, Dev, the Linux DevOps stuff, Jay's got some solid playlists. You go to learnlinux.tv. They're already grouped and organized for you. 
so you can get started with some of these tools. We've got a pretty, you got a pretty good library on it, on your channel for that. Um, and yeah. I believe you have some write-ups kind of accompanying some of them as well, right? Yep. Yes, I do. And I'll, yeah. I'll be posting a message looking for volunteers to help improve the documentation too. Uh, but for clarification, I do have the video for, you know, Kubernetes on a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. Um, but as far as like a, um, like an individual tutorial series, multi-episode for Kubernetes, that's what I'm going to be developing in the future. But right now, if you have some Raspberry Pis lying around and you want to set up a cluster, yeah, I have videos for that already that you could benefit from. And if you use like a NAS, you could have an NFS mount to the backend storage for your containers. So that way containers are truly disposable as they should be. Yep. Um, the next question, and this is this is one that I have a really simple answer for. Yeah, <laughs> Number 79 here. We both do. Yeah. So someone said, you know, it would be great if you could cover uh, the best way of optimizing memory, CPU, and VM containers on Proxmox, along with the setting of swap, et cetera, to make everything as efficient as possible. And I've seen this post. I think it was in the PFSense forum, but it's not the first time I've ever seen this, but I believe in this a lot. Now, there's going to be exceptions to this, but if right. there are better defaults, we would make them the defaults. And I've seen more than one developer say that. There's a reason a lot of things are defaulted the way they are. In a lot of it has to do with optimization. Now you go back years ago. Yes, we always knew, especially anyone in the overclockers world was going to go, but Tom, you can always squeeze a little more out of a processor, especially the early days. You could actually squeeze a lot more because they were underclocked almost, you right. know, so we get it. There's a lot of optimization, but here in 2022, a lot of these companies and Proxmox and hypervisors, especially that's a lot of what these optimizations are are that they release the updates they release are to create better efficiencies in the way the kernel handles different swapping of things. It's, it's not to say there's not best practices for setup of them, but right. as far as kernel tuning and things like that, that's been done by the developers to create a stable environment, a very solid environment. That's not going to randomly crash on you back to, you know, basically stable environment here, but it's also, if there was a better way to do it, they would, flip that switch and tune that kernel and turn those knobs and make it that way. So you actually yeah. don't have to do too much out of the box of setting these up. Now, the next thing that may come in is of course, general practice. And maybe I don't want to assume too much because if you're new to virtualization, but don't over provision. So if you have 32 cores available, don't assign 32 cores to every single VM. Because <laughs> <you're>, right. <laughs> you, you, you are now creating, you can over provision the number of cores. The system scheduler will figure it out, but you can have some conflicts where there's so much context switching. You end up uh, slowing down the machine because this machine said, I want to use 32 cores now and no one else is doing it. So no problem. But when a few machines go, I also would like to use all 32 cores. The system will actually accommodate for it. It's not going to cause it to crash, but you end up with a context switching. So you've now created some inefficiencies and most of the time you just only need to assign as many cores as needed, but no more to those systems. It's okay to be over provisioned a little bit, but that's really getting down to your workload and outside of the original question of what's the most efficient way. Cause a lot of people are just looking for what knobs to turn. What is an extra parameter on there? And I even go back to, you know, I, uh, this came up because someone posted, um, I don't know if anyone, I'll, I'll describe it visually and I'll look at the comments, see if anyone gets a joke. Someone posted a sock with a trumpet on it. And I got the joke right away. And then it says some, you know, and I was like, I'm old enough to completely understand this. And a little bit uh, where I was going with this is in the early days of tech, you had to adjust your MTU sec 
MTU settings when you did dial up so you could have better frame alignment for the way the dial up ISPs because they didn't take the time. They connected the internet, but they didn't optimize it. So it, granted, you go back into history, tons of tuning <laughs> that constantly uh, had to be done here. I, I, yes, I know jumbo frames are a thing when you're optimizing network under certain conditions, but for the most part, because uh, Wendell actually did talk about uh, uh, there's some optimizations and frames to line up for storage. She is a, I, I'm trying to remember what video we talked about that and I thought was a clever thing, but for the most part, a lot of the stuff out of the box is pretty much optimized. And I've joked around uh, some of the consulting work we do is setting things back to default because people thought they could retune the system and woo, just they they made so many things work worse because they uh turned all the knobs checked all the boxes uh added a lot of parameters i'm like i don't know where you googled that but right. we're gonna take that back out <laughs> exactly i i completely agree it, you know it's not like we have as much competition in open source. It's it's not like, you know, um, Hyper-V versus VMware um, where, you know, but it's it's kind of the same because, you know, even in the commercial packages, um, no one no one wants to use it if it sucks. So if, it, if it's slower than the competition, then people are going to go to the competition. Now, in open source, again, it's not as much competition, um, sometimes not at all, but they still don't want their solution to suck. So if there's a flag that they can enable that's going to boost performance, they absolutely will enable that flag. However, um, there are some situations, like you were saying, where you can increase the performance. I do understand some people are running, you know, off a server that's like 20 years old because, you know, we can't always afford something new. And you really do want to stretch that as far as you, as far as you can go. But like you said, defaults are there to be the best that they can be. Now, if you do want to get it to go faster, which you can do, there's going to be trade-offs. For example, if there's a feature that you're not using and you never plan to use it, you can probably disable it, and that might make it a little bit faster. You could do things such as, um, you know, set it, setting up the OS, basically, you know, like the Proxmox installation itself to run off like an NVMe, and then, oh my God, it just flies when you go to the web interface. It's just, you know, fantastic. But not everybody has support for that, right? So I can't say, oh yeah, everyone should use NVMe. Well, yeah, if you can afford it and if you have it. And then there's other things you can tune that will um, increase performance, but at the expense of something else. So it's a trade-off. The other thing I would recommend, though, is to pay attention to your hypervisor settings for like hard drive type, network card type, things like that, because you'll read in the documentation, this is especially true with Proxmox, that for different operating systems, they might recommend a different storage type or a different network card type. As long as you follow that, and it's not going to be more than like two or three different things to change, then you should probably have a good um, experience and also look into memory ballooning as well. Uh, don't go crazy with that. Uh, it's a complex topic, but um, I, I would recommend at least reading about it, knowing what it is. Aside from that, there's really not a lot you can do. It, you know, they, they pretty much do it for you. Yep. Um, next one, just a comment I'll have because it kind of, it, this definitely goes out of home lab what the person's looking for. What would you recommend as a network storage solution that has high throughput, um, three gigs plus great small file operation and hardware fault tolerance. And yes, I've reviewed some of the TrueNAS systems that have dual active, active motherboards. Um, there we we've installed some of these for some very large, uh, high demanding environments. Uh, but you're talking about, you know, a system that costs you around 80, $90,000. It's not a software recommendation. It's a combination of software, hardware, 
recommendation to create something fault tolerant that works with, you know, the 100 gig networking and everything else. TrueDAS and IX systems can build those. I seen that question come in here, so I thought they're all an answer, but it, I think that feels like it's going a little out of scope of home lab. Right. I mean, cool if you can put those in your home lab, but uh, doubt that you have those in your home lab. Sounds like more of an enterprise question, which is probably better asked in my forums or more specifically in the TrueNAS forums. They have build opportunities for things like that. So I just want to mention it because it's in the questions, but um, that's my thoughts on it. Hey, and we all love playing with that hardware. Don't get me wrong. So <laughs> yeah, and it's fun to get hand-me-down hardware that at one point was super expensive and out of reach for us. And then, you know, it becomes really easy to find and really cheap on eBay, like 10 gig Ethernet, for example, buying that new at one point. Oh, my God, that was a lot of money. But now it's like you can get a uh, was it like 60, 70 dollars for a 10 gig Ethernet card when they used to be a lot more money. Um, you just buy them used. And I mean, you have all kinds of videos on your channel for that. So I'm not going to. Um, Steal that away, but you know there's there's a lot of content out there on your channel for um, you know 10 gig and things like that. If someone wants to go that direction, yep. Um, I think the next question about the hacker is interesting. So, yep. I, I so as a as hackers focus more on Linux, the <laughs> uh, what can should Linux users do to protect their systems? Yep. Uh, it's not that they're focusing more on Linux. It's the it's the old adage when they ask, um, oh, I forgot the guy's name. He was a famous bank robber, but they asked him, well, why do you rob banks? He says, well, that's where the money's at. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's a really obvious answer. Uh, and because if they can't, it's the lowest hanging fruit. And actually someone pointed out something I found hysterical. The security obscurity uh, actually works pretty well here in 2022 because you don't have to, you know, outrun the bear. You just have to outrun a hungry bear. And there's so much the bear can feed on right now. So there's if, if you're using Linux, you're statistically less likely because where's the money at? Well, not the home lab or running Linux. You can only get so much money out of that person. <laughs> but right. there's and there's so many like when the recent VMware things, I'm like, who's publicly exposing their VMware infrastructure? Because this is expensive expensive high-end VMware infrastructure and a quick showdown list said 6,000 businesses. And I'm like, you don't worry until someone hits all 6,000 of these businesses with log for J, then they're going to go after you. So <laughs> your, your little obscure yeah. thing is lower on the list, but let's be more realistic about it. Um, the yeah. reality is with Linux, there's it, you have to think about where your threat surface is and are things publicly exposed? Like Jay mentioned earlier with WordPress, WordPress is public facing. Therefore, flaws in WordPress, uh, being that is one of the, I think at one point, I think WordPress brags to have like 70% of the website market roughly is built on WordPress. And I, I believe it. It's built on, for any business, even my company, uh, we run on WordPress. Most of the small businesses we deal with are running on WordPress. The only exceptions are when people use a, one of those like managed companies like Wix or whoever to manage your website or ShareSpace right. or Squarespace or any of those. But that being said, there's a public facing site. Therefore, it's not exactly an attack on Linux, but WordPress pretty much not, I know you could run it on Windows, but for the most part, everyone runs on Linux, uh, just like we do. And thanks for our sponsor, Linode. That's where it's running in a Linode server. So you have to think about where your threat surface is. If you're using Linux on your desktop, your threat surface is your browser. How can someone escape the browser? Unless you're running a web server on your daily usage computer. Don't do that, but it's about what you're leaving exposed. So keeping the browser up to date absolutely is the top security. Then from there, the browser should also 
not allow things to escape out of its sandbox to get too much further into your system. Those are really where you have to think about the threat service. And it's, it's more of a, the browser attacks are generic. So all the releases they have for browser attacks and the patches for Firefox and patches for uh, Chrome, and more specifically, we'll say Chromium as an engine, which drives many of the other browsers. As long as those things are kept up to date, you're reasonably secure. Most of the mm-hmm. attack surface still goes towards the Microsoft world because they escape and then they try to run and execute a binary in the operating system that they target. So first they have to escape out of the browser, then they target the operating system. Good news is for you Linux folks, uh, the virus type of things they're trying to deploy probably won't work on your system. So it's less a Linux security thing, more of a browser security thing from your threat surface. The other side, if you're just pulling from the repositories, you're not downloading rando files from somewhere. You can stay with a high level of confidence because you don't get to control the supply chain. And by the way, some type of uh, antivirus tooling on your computers unlikely to detect something coming from upstream down to your computer because it was signed. It was trusted from upstream. Therefore, it really would be difficult for any type of AV tool to dig into your system and go, oh, no, no, this update that came upstream from the uh, repository is a threat. At some point, you do have to have a trust level with your OS and where you're getting it from. This is also where I think it's going to become harder and harder for anyone security conscious to do any type of distro hopping because you have to have a series of trust in your supply chain, make sure people are vetting it, make sure people in Ubuntu is going to be an example. They maintain the repository. There's a series of external things that the Ubuntu developers are looking at through the supply chain before they compile it into a binary, before that binary again gets delivered to their system. And then for you to pull that update, the confidence level you have in that chain of trust is going to keep you safe overall. So it's not as simple as will they be targeting it? Do we need an AV system? Windows, because it's built on running applications that are unsigned versus Linux natively, unless you start tinkering with it, is only running the signed applications that are from the repositories and any repository that you add, it always has to be in your trust model. Um, that's why you need it in Windows. There's so many different ways that things are being executed on there. This is where right. eventually Windows may have to move towards, and Microsoft tried it in a very, because they didn't do it in the beginning. Microsoft tried like the Windows 10 S mode that only runs signed applications. Well, it turns out can't get out when you can't get everyone on your ecosystem and everyone's ecosystem is third party external and that becomes a huge challenge, <laughs> then you, you back, you're, you're back to not easy to implement because Linux grew up that way. Linux was an app market before we called it an app market, but that's kind of how it works. We apt get install something in Debian. It's pulling from a repository, a list of known software that went through an approval process. And that's what keeps that chain of trust on there. So it's less a concern um, from a daily driver standpoint. Also, uh, as optimistic as us Linux enthusiasts people are here, we know the real world doesn't even wonder what's on their desktop. It's not right. your the Linux desktop. It's it's something the rest of the world's not even thinking about. So we're still yeah. the one percenters, maybe two percenters, depending on uh, the optimistic reports we see on uh, Linux news sites. That's the year the Windows desktop <laughs> or Linux yeah. desktop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I would say. Um, I know this isn't what people generally want to hear, but it's the truth. It's like focus on you first before you focus on the machine. So, you know, for example, I'm sure our audience isn't, um, you know, among this example, but people will say, well, I got infected by by a virus. So my antivirus is crap because I got infected. Well, you, you probably 
did something or clicked on something you shouldn't have clicked on most of the time. So I think of antivirus like the guardrail on the expressway. If you are swerving around, you're hoping there's a guardrail there so you don't fall into the ditch, right? But if I think you should just focus on your driving and not swerve as much and not rely on a protection mechanism. And then when you have, you know, when the person says about hackers focusing more on Linux, I think the important mindset to, to understand is that hackers focus on the path of least resistance, not the operating system. So, for example, if your password is four characters, I don't care if you're running Windows, BSD, Linux, whatever, um, you're going to get it. I mean, people, someone's going to get in because your password is insecure. So the problem isn't your operating system. Choose a better password. Better yet, why is password authentication enabled in the first place? So when you focus on adjusting your habits and your expectations, I think that security kind of comes naturally. Unless you're you're working at a business where you're a target, an actual target, then if someone gets in, it's probably because you have a you haven't updated in a long time. There's a nasty vulnerability there, and uh, they someone found you on Shodan or something like that. That's probably why it happened. So just focus on. Um, you know, having better defaults and just having a secure system and just not expecting too much. Um, Linux is Linux more secure? Yes, but that doesn't mean it's going to save you either. Right. You can still do dumb things. Well, that reaches yep. then those questions. I've seen a few questions here that I can roll back and answer uh, that came through. Um, we have uh, someone asked about if we have a whole workflow for the video stuff we do. I've done, I don't know if Jay's someone and I need to do an updated once it's going to change to the way Jay's doing it now. Uh, I have a whole video that uh, has my process and workflow because it is mostly done with open source tools uh, for those interested. It's on my channel. So I'll address that. Um, PFSense 2.6. I don't have a full list of what's coming out in it, but you can check there. Uh, Redmine is what they use. You can like Google PFSense Redmine. They have publicly listed like all the new things that are coming in uh, that version. So it's not too hard to find out, but I I'm going to wait till it's at least in a release candidate state because release candidate means it's feature stable. Um, and those are usually the features that are going to stay in it for the release. So it's still not, it's not even in release candidate yet. So I'm not diving deep into it. Okay, but someone asked about WireGuard being full release. It's always going to stay a plugin. Um, there's, really solid reasons for doing that. Christian McDonald outlines them. He is the developer that works for NetGate and one of, he heads up the WireGuard project. He's talked about it. He's got videos you can find on that. I've tweeted them. I've shared them, uh, but it's Christian McDonald who works for NetGate. He's, he can describe better. Uh, he, matter of fact, he's got a PFSense 2.6 video. He knows more than me about it because he's developer <laughs> doing it. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But he also is developing the WireGuard. It's going to stay a plugin and he outlines in his last, well, the video released within the last 30 days. Um, he may have done another one. I haven't looked, but that covers why WireGuard will stay a plugin. He's got some really solid reasons and he's a developer. So I'm going to go with, he really knows. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. You don't and need there's... UCC for TrueNAS. I'll throw that out there. I've got yep. a video on that topic. Yeah. That's the age old debate, right? Um, yeah. It's coming it, up a lot. Is ECC better? Sure. Um, is an enterprise hard drive better, but can you build it without one? Yes. You, you right. can. And is it fine? Yes. Um, is it better to use ECC? Better from the weird, uh, and I addressed this in the video, ZFS is a copy on write file system. The copy on write occurs when a checksum actually verifies the data. The idea that a solar flare could fire off and cause a bit flip, but then the checksum would still match is just 
an astronomically small chance that it could actually corrupt the data. Uh, and then someone will then point out, but what if it was doing a scrub and the solar flare did it and the checksum on the scrub did it and flipped a bit and it failed? I'm like, you're more likely, the most likely scenario, because we don't know what bit it's going to flip, is you get a crash or a locked up system than a um, problem. So uh, you can get away with not ECC and fine. Better with two, but not necessary. <laughs> and, and better is such a rabbit hole. I mean, if you think about it, would a server with, you know, a thousand cores be better? Well, sure. But can you afford it? Probably not. So if it, it really comes down to your budget, because if um, ECC memory is going to be more expensive in your build and it's just not within your budget, well, it's out of reach. So, I mean, you really don't have a choice. I think some people might ask because they're using TrueNAS and they just don't know if they should be, if they don't have ECC. Well, if you don't have ECC, you don't have ECC. So you can't benefit from the improvements that it might give you. But even if you did have ECC, there's something else that you can improve. You could get, you could just replace all of your um, disks with um, SSDs. Why not? Um, sky's the limit. But then you watch your bank account just get depleted and then you'll probably regret it. So it's probably just a better idea to have um, something that, um, you know, sane expectations without trying to spend, you know, all your money on um, a solution or throwing money at your problem which is what I think that ultimately leads to. And another thing, we had another question I wanted to bring up. Uh, we had a whole episode about this, so I'm going to summarize it a little bit because the whole subnet and VLAN thing just becomes like oh. kind of confusing, right? Because um, when do you use one and uh, when do you use the other? Now, subnets and VLANs are different things. Um, I, so I want to make that clear. Um, the reason why you would use a subnet or multiple subnets and multiple VLANs can be mutually inclusive, but the technologies themselves don't have to be included. So when it comes to subnetting, the primary reason I think a home lab person would do this is because they want more IPs. At one point, you know, in our average household, we probably had one family computer. That was it. We might have one Roku and one laptop. So 254 addresses in a slash 24 network, that goes a long way. And at that time, you're probably not going to deplete that. But now when you add IoT, you know, everyone in the house has a smartphone, possibly a tablet, a laptop, a desktop. You have your, your other devices there. Then 254 addresses. That doesn't seem like all that many now. But if you drop the subnet mask down to like slash 22, well, all of a sudden you have a lot more IPs, which is also why if you go to a, a public restaurant and they offer public Wi-Fi and you can't get connected, it's because they have a slash 24 and they're really close to the road and people passing by are, you know, grabbing IPs as they go by. So you'll never have a chance, but it's just one of those things people don't understand. But having more IP addresses is why you do that. Now, VLANs will give you segregation via firewall because you can have firewall rules attached to your VLAN, but where they intersect is how people do it in practice. It's not that you have to do it this way. It's just that this is the way that people do it. So if you have multiple subnets and each one is you know, practically married to a VLAN, it, they become a one-to-one -one relationship, but they're not one-to-one -one by default. But you could have VLAN 1 and you have an IP address scheme, let's just say 192, 168, one zero slash 24 then the next one 192.168.2.0 slash 24 and you can have like a bunch of these and each you can even have like the third octet match the vlan id so it's really easy to know which ip scheme goes with which you don't have to do it that way but it's just the best way to combine the technologies in a way that actually helps you apply firewall rules and if you see an ip list on your dcp server 
if you see like 192.168.30 or whatever it is, I'm just making up numbers and it matches the VLAN ID. Oh, well, that's on the server VLAN. So I know wh where that machine is. It matches. And then you could just create your firewall rules accordingly. So you don't have to use them together, but most people do because it just makes the most sense. I hope that clears it up. Yeah, that, that is we did. We dove into that video and it is it is a really tough topic. It really um, is. It's. It, it's something you just have to wrap your head around and do. It's probably one of the first things you'll learn in the home lab is how network segmentation work. And it populates partly because I talk about network engineering. It, it's a popular topic among uh, the people on my forums all the time is, Hey, this doesn't work. And why can't I get these VLANs to traverse? And very frequently it's because you need switches that are VLAN aware and it starts the rabbit hole of discussion on that. So <laughs> definitely worth uh, talking about. Yeah. Uh, the do 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 the older one. Someone asked about web filtering. This comes up a lot. I would I never recommend Squid with PF Sense. Um, honestly, it just anytime you get into SSL filtering, it's a headache. Uh, we do it only when we absolutely have to at the firewall level because it's always a rabbit hole of you set it up and then you start running around building tons of exclusion lists of all the things you can't do man in the middle firewall filtering for. But obviously there's a need to, if you run a business, keep an eye on users. Um, there's nothing I know that's really good in the open source world that does this. It comes down to commercial software, but right. tracking where your users are going, just a general idea and having a log of traffic. There probably isn't any great way to do it besides a tool like Security Onion, which was actually our last episode, where if you really want to know what everything and everyone on your network is doing, full network monitoring with a tool such as Security Onion to really dive deep into it. But you're talking about an absolute beast of a product to be able right. to do that. This is one of the reasons why there's so many commercial solutions in that space uh, for tooling that you load on individual computers that you pay monthly subscription fees for, uh, because it's hard to figure out where all the users are going. It's the, the way of the web is of two problems. One, we want to encrypt everything because that's the better security model. So people don't sniff the traffic. It, it's really weird to even think, you know, in one of my favorite demos was around 2010 ish, I think uh, when fire sheep was released fire sheep was, we started encrypting some websites, but they would quickly drop back down to non-encrypted. And so we encrypted the login for the website a session cookie was then added to your system. And then you went back over to a non-encrypted way. And the way those session cookies were passed back and forth in clear text allowed a tool called FireSheep going, I don't need your username and password if I have your session cookies. So you could sniff session cookies. So we've come <laughs> way further uh, and way better here in 2022 to pretty much the majority of sites think the tools like Let's Encrypt are encrypted. This came, though, at the expense of lots of internal sysadmins being told by management, where'd my users go? I need to track my users. And now we've been blinded by encryption. Uh, and we only have like the SNI header left because I know ESNI is a thing. But for the most part, the SNI header is about the only thing left we have to give us some visibility into that. So that's my long soapbox talk of why it's so hard to track where users go and what right. traffic they uh, did. And this is why there's such a, and from a business standpoint, when I'm not talking on the home lab show, uh, we use commercial tooling to be able to monitor track and filter uh, people's websites to, corral them, if you will, into things. There are tools like PF Blocker that at least will deny DNS lookups for a lot of these sites and put some blocks in there. Um, 
untangles a firewall solution that's commercial that I've talked about and demoed on my channel that has a subscription fee, but does offer some web filtering and web tracking for where the users are going without having to load an end user agent or break SSL. It does have, it does cover that in between what, that means, though, is you'll see the SNI headers, so you know the URL they went to, but not the full URL. You won't know what they did necessarily always on the site because there's only so much you can track with that. SNI headers are what help you get. Um, yeah, Monday may well dive into how SSL and SNI headers work because I think it's a fun yeah. topic. It's very technical, but it's worth um, worth having an understanding for. But that's how you get into some of the uh, where do these users go or being able because having that visibility with untangle also means you can block it now once you go full uh install a certificate and break ssl good luck it's a it's an administrative challenge at the same time uh because so many right. sites use ssl pinning uh that stops and breaks things so you have to start making exception lists on it so long-winded answer for about tracking users and where yeah. they went. and i would say too it, you know again come down to mindset I, I really feel that the internet doesn't want to be monitored and anything that any solution or anyone developing a solution for any purpose, anytime they can make it harder to be monitored, they will do that. They don't care if you have a net nanny. They don't care if your company wants to filter things. They're not taking you into consideration when they're developing these technologies. So, you know, Firefox wants to roll out DNS encryption. They're not asking if, you know, you have kids you want to, I mean, they might ask right now whether you want it on or off, but at some point it's probably just going to be on by default. They don't care. So what you'll find in when it comes to, you know, net nannies or children, for example, you just want to have conversations with them um, because they'll always find a way around it at a certain age. When, when they turn 13, you're done. I'm sorry, you're, <laughs> you're just done. Um, you know, I thought I was clever, right? So I, I had everything going through um, something like that with, um, I think I was using OpenDNS and then later clean browsing. And then, you know, it, I thought it solved the problem, but then I saw on Discord, his, he, you know, kids are just dumping things that they can't or shouldn't be accessing in Discord. So they get it yes. there because they're not getting it through the browser. So you'll, you know, if you're a parent, you'll probably be amazed at how clever kids are nowadays. And the only solution is to have a conversation with them because at, at age 13, or if, you know, you, you have a child prodigy age 10, they're going to um, totally get around that. And I do predict, unfortunately, that the internet just will not be able to be monitored at some point in the future because the people that are making the next generation technologies, they're not taking you and your your wishes into consideration um, because more people like privacy. So that's the direction that they're going to go. So yes. whether you like it or not, um, it, you can, to some extent, um, filter the internet right now. But at some point, you honestly may as well just not. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge on there. And uh, like I said, from the complete business standpoint, the way we handle it as a business is loading tools on the system natively that deeply spy on people, if you will. And there's right. people who may disagree with that. That's just the reality of if we have to manage these clients and manage your computers and manage that level, that's something we need to do. Um it's something the it's just part of the market we work in uh, to be able to keep these people from clicking on things uh, yep. that they shouldn't. But nonetheless, um, I'll actually mention this here. I seen someone saying that, um, and uh, this is actually something that's getting better. Uh, the worst for web admins is diminishing certificate validity period. I think it's a wonderful thing that we've diminished 
greatly. You used to be able to buy 10-year certificates. I think for a little while you could buy even longer, uh, but 10-year certificates used to be a thing. I actually am thrilled that one year, and I would actually even be happy to see it as low as six months or even that six months is pretty good. But as we adopt a better internet, the goal has been always on the Let's Encrypt organization to get people to build automation around their certificate systems. It, it's reason it's called the Acme cert system. It's not called the Let's Encrypt cert system. Let's Encrypt does offer certificates, almost like a proof of concept, if you will, that you can do this at an automated method and no longer have to worry about it. But some companies have their own ideas in their head and they may not do it. Uh, but the Acme protocol does support using anyone who wants to adopt the standards of having automatic cert renewal with shorter uh, expiration. The shorter expiration is a better security feature. Um, that way it is more, it, if you want to think about it from this perspective, if you took an expired cert, I, let's say I capture the traffic between two points, but the cert, hey, it was valid and I have the data, but I can't, I can't reverse engineer that data. Well, if I ever got that certificate and no one thinks about, oh, we threw out the, you know, I say threw out as if it's tangible, but what if someone were to acquire in the future that cert? Well, then there's that potential for it. But a series of expiring auto renewing certs that go away um, or you renew them whenever you think they're compromised through an automated process, this gives you a better confidence level and security. It also lets domains expire, especially if, a domain gets left unattended and is maybe serving up malware because no one's watching it no more. Um, yeah, that could be a problem. You kind of want those search to expire on there. Of course, I, I'm contradicting myself in some ways and feel free to point this out. The fact that if you had an automated system on there, it would automatically renew, renew the cert for the system on there. Yeah. Um, I think it's better though that they're expiring. It, it at least shows some active uh, level of engagement with the site. So I don't think it's a problem. I think in, in the big picture, uh, Let's Encrypt is done a wonderful service to one, encrypt more things. So things like Fire Sheep don't work no more. And um, having an automation tool and more companies having that opportunity for using that automation tool to automatically renew certificates. Yep. And I will, as an aside, you know, just one last thing I'll mention just because it's kind of funny. I could think of one major reason though, um, to implement, um, some kind of a, um, filter or net nanny on your network. And that is to play like really awesome April Fool's jokes on your kids, because I <laughs> swear it's the best thing ever. Like you could just make every single website resolve to the Hello Kitty website. Um, you could make it filter words that are perfectly fine, like very common words as if they're swear words and just, just have some fun. But <laughs> other than that, um, yeah, probably not. Yep. So yeah, I think that's it. I've seen someone asked um, in here in the questions if you could use a TrueNAS Mini with Proxmox. Sure, runs TrueNAS. Uh, is it going to be fast? That's it, or will it be fast enough for you? I don't know. It depends on your VM workload. But yep. um, that's that's always uh, scaling out systems and planning. That is always a lot more challenging because it really comes down to understanding what your workload is. How many IOPS do you need? Right. We all want more, but more runs into our budget. <laughs> so more what's your budget for how many IOPS? There's so many, uh, that is something that tuning variables becomes a lot in there. And in, in your financial tuning is a big variable. That's that's the biggest knob in this is how much money can we pump into this system? <laughs> right. Uh, well, thank you. Well, is there anything, more, anything else you've seen in here, Jay? Did we answer Not so far. Questions? Not so far. All right. 
Well, we're looking forward to doing this again. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing from all of you. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week. We're trying to get more consistent. I'm trying to post the show earlier. We're trying to get it as a ritual that we're doing this uh, Wednesdays at 11. And cross my fingers, I'll be doing this from a new studio soon. So, Yay. Uh, Can't wait. Absolutely. Oh, one final question here. Uh, free cloud cloud for proxy service. I haven't tested it. Have you, Jay? Nope. Me either. So I got no opinion on it. No opinion here either. Uh, is it smart to bare metal Ubuntu server and run Docker? Uh, sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do it. That's that's um, how a lot of people do it. So yeah. Yeah. It, it, once again, as long as you have a good deploy and build process. So yep. Um, Borg backup, haven't used it. So yep. Uh, oh, no. I'm going to go with this is a no right here. Uh, I, I guess there's another reason for proxy outside SSL inspection caching. Websites are so dynamic. I don't think caching is even relevant anymore. Most of the stuff won't cache very well. Like it, right. because of the way the streams are put together on most of the stuff, I don't think there's much value in caching like there used to be. It's pretty limited use case there, especially with the way the dynamic content's generated. So, yep, I agree with that as well. That's, yep. uh, the like the industry changes on us you know it's just like it's almost like the industry is going the direction it's going and we're all along for the ride yes we're developing it and you know a lot of talented people out there are doing that but it's, it's still naturally going a specific direction and some of these things that were you know a godsend at one point just really don't they don't work as well yeah. now. So. and i did I, I full disclosure guys i built squid caching servers in around 2000 2001 on a split um t1 that uh, that dynamically allocated uh lines for phone and would slow down our bandwidth and we used to have a team i worked in corporate it and we cached everything because everyone hit the weather channel for different areas because weather was important because i was it for a transportation company don't get me wrong i completely understand how valuable that was in 2001 Yep. <laughs> and I, it was, it was a very successful, I used to have like charts that measured the cash hits and stats out of it. And I was always like, look how much bandwidth I'm saving us on our fractionalized T1 here. Um, but here in 2022, that's just less, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's, exactly. if you're, if you're as old in tech and you didn't progress from tech, uh, then you would say, yeah, that's probably valid. But it, once you understand a lot of the dynamics and the way dynamic content's generated, uh, having matched caches, no. And then, of course, TLS 1.3 with a extra layer of encryption where you have an encryption on what I refer to as the outer layer with your SSL and then a secondary Diffie-Hellman exchange with an ephemeral key only for that session. So you're now encrypted again. Yeah, now you broke it. The, there's a way around it where you also will uh, do TLS 1.3 between the proxy and the website, then do TLS 1.3 between that. But there's very few devices outside of like NetScaler that have that ability to do that. So now we're going to go into another rabbit hole of that's really hard to do and doesn't add a lot of value. <laughs> I saw a question in here about uh, something I mentioned before, which was, um, you know, when it comes to music, I love music. Music is therapeutic to me. It's like uh, whether I'm in a good mood, bad mood, there's a, there's a song for that, right? Yep. So um, res the Raspberry Pi solution that I use is Volumio. I hope oh, yeah. I'm saying that right. And B-O-L-U-M-I-O, I believe. And it's a Raspberry Pi image that you could flash onto an SD card. And then you can, of course, plug it in and um, 
either add your music collection to the SD card or have a network share and tell it where to find your music collection and it will, will scan it. And then you plug in some really good speakers to the Raspberry Pi and then you can visit this in a web browser. So it's like, in, in my case, anyone in the house um, can just go on this website inside the local network here and just play a song on this thing. It's got some really loud speakers on there. Um, I really love that solution a lot. What I had to do on my end, I don't know why, is I had to, um, with the Raspberry Pi 4, I didn't have this problem with the 3. I had to actually buy a USB sound card for the Raspberry Pi and plug the speakers into that because if I plug the speakers directly into the Raspberry Pi, it sounded like garbage. I literally thought that my speakers were blown which was weird because I, I wasn't cranking it up or anything. And then I tried a USB sound card, plugged it into that, fixed the problem completely. Um, I don't, again, I don't know why, but I think I paid maybe $30 for that USB sound card. I don't remember which one it was. And they might have fixed it now because it could have just been like a driver issue or something. So I, I don't think anyone should just go out and buy a sound card. All I'm saying is if it doesn't sound right, you could maybe blame that. But Volumio is definitely something to look into. Our friend Phil turned me on to that. And I've been yeah, using he's, it ever since. He's got since, a cool setup so. for it too. So yep. Um definitely check that out. And um you can make yourself a Raspberry Pi jukebox, assuming you can find a Raspberry Pi, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is really tough right now. Um I saw one some sites are back ordered until this coming September. Yeah. But just keep your eye on Twitter. I follow Jeff Gearing and he um he posted a link to some today. So they're probably gone oh, okay. because that was this morning. <laughs> yeah, he did that yesterday as well. And I was able to buy uh, two of them for a project I was uh, working on, a uh, compute module. So, uh, but if you can get a, your hands on a Raspberry Pi, or if you already have one and you don't mind dedicating it to this, you could uh, download Volumio, the image, and then um, flash it on there, point it to your music collection and have fun. Yep. All right. We're going to wind this down. I just looked at the time and I have another thing I got to go do. So thank you all of you for joining us. Uh, Hit us up at thehomelab.show. Fill out our feedback form. We love doing these Q&A episodes. We love answering all your questions and keeping everyone excited about it. Thanks. Thank you.